doctors don't have a clear understanding of it. It started opening up my mind to like, how does the human body work? This is a real thing that really affects people. This is a major pain. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Summer about neuromyelitis optica, also known as NMO. This is a rare central nervous system disorder that primarily affects the optic nerve and the spinal cord. This disease has a lot of similarities to MS, multiple sclerosis, and is often misdiagnosed as MS. In fact, Summer herself was initially misdiagnosed with MS. There's often a huge disconnect between patients who suffer from rare diseases and their doctors, and it can be very difficult to explain to a doctor what's going on and how things feel and have them understand. And that's what makes this conversation so special, is that Summer herself is a doctor. So we actually have a doctor with a chronic rare health condition who's able to explain it in scientific terms and be on both sides, doctor and patient, at the same time. I love this conversation. I had so much fun talking to Summer. She's just a really cool person with a great outlook, uh, so much to share, so much that she's been through, and I'm honored to share this conversation with you. I have a couple of quick pieces of community news to share with you before we jump into this conversation. As you know, you can always reach out to the Major Pain Podcast at gmail.com email address if you want to reach me or reach any of our guests. And that's exactly what happened after my girlfriend Andy was on the show a few weeks back talking about her pituitary adenoma. So I wanted to thank Sydney and Tenley, who both reached out to try to reach Andy and talk to her a little bit about their similar experiences. I was really excited to be able to facilitate that connection. Andy and I spoke in her episode about how she often feels like her male doctor is not necessarily appreciating the emotional aspect of dealing with a prolactinoma, pituitary adenoma. And Sydney actually addressed this in her email. She said, I saw so many male endocrinologists who were very dismissive and awful, but seeing a female doctor at University of Washington Medical Center is a game changer. And she actually provided the name of this doctor, and I'm excited to announce that Andy has made an appointment with this female endocrinologist to get a second opinion about her pituitary adenoma and to talk to a woman about it for the first time. So I was so excited that this happened. I just had to share this because I, I just think it's just such a cool thing. You know, this may not yield anything different for Andy. She might see this second specialist and just have the same recommendations. But I'm really excited that this is happening, that, uh, that there's even a chance of something new or something different, something potentially helpful happening, especially because, of course, Andy is my partner, my girlfriend, and I love her and I want to see the best for her. But I'm also just so excited to facilitate connections on this podcast and to help people reach each other who've been going through something alone to be able to talk to it with someone else. I just craved that for so many years on my own journey and to be able to facilitate that is such a thrill for me. I also want to thank the listener who gave us our 17th five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. I love seeing that number go up. This is one of the best ways that you can help support the show and provide some feedback. So head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a positive rating and review. It really means a lot to me. This episode of Major Pain was produced by Steve Cavanaugh, with special thanks to everyone currently supporting us on Patreon. Another great way to support this podcast is to head over to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast and sign up for a recurring monthly contribution to help keep this show running. I also just wanted to say on a personal note that today's been a really rough day. Uh, I've had a couple of rough health days in a row, and I really try to focus on the positive on this show, you know, ways to look 
look at your life in a positive, healthy way and to find ways to be in the moment and to feel good. And some days it just isn't possible. Some days just suck. And I I really want to acknowledge that because I don't want to, you know, focus so much on the positive that I ever run the risk of, you know, making someone feel like the negative doesn't exist or like, you know, if they're feeling negative, that that is wrong because that's not at all the case. You know, any chronic illness that you live with is going to suck and there's going to be some really rough days. And, you know, I woke up today having a rough day. And then later on in the day, I did get the results from my genetic testing. You'll hear in this episode, um, I talked to Summer about how I got a spit test where I had to spit into this little thing and mail it off to have some genetic testing done. And of course, they did not find any defects in the in my genome that they tested. So I'm still, you know, searching for an answer. And that, you know, every time it happens, it's just such a gut punch because I just get so excited. I can't help myself. I just want to know what it is and hopefully find some treatment. And this was a really promising avenue that we were pursuing. So we still don't have any answers. And it just sucked to get that news on a rough day. So I just want to express that because you know, just give you the full picture of what it's like. I know that you know what that's like if you live with chronic illness, and I I don't want to run the risk of hiding this part of the picture about how hard some days can be. But, you know, I'm here. I'm recording this intro. We're going to get this podcast out on time, and I'm making it happen. So, and, and this conversation is, is so good, and, and Summer did such an amazing job coming on the show. So I'm just trying, to, again, to find the positive even on the bad days, and I appreciate you being here with us to do so. So let's jump into our conversation with Summer about neuromyelitis optica, or NMO. Summer, welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah, it's great to meet you. This is really exciting. We we connected through TikTok. We've never spoken before, and I'm really excited to get to know you today. Absolutely. I'm excited to get to know you as well. So, Summer, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I am. I just turned 44. I am a physician. Um, I do internal medicine outpatient. I am a mom of two biological children and four bonus kids. Married. Um, we have four dogs and we just kind of live a normal life the best we can around everything else so yeah that's really about it the the internet connection got a little spotty for a second did you say you have four bonus kids yes wow. I have four bonus kids my bonus kids are actually my husband's from his first marriage ah, gotcha wow that's a so big household kids i just don't like the term stepkids i feel like it makes them less than or yeah. separate yeah. Than my own children. And they're all my kids. Yeah. They're so. bonus kids. I like it. <laughs> right. I just didn't have to give birth to them. So, hey, that's a bonus, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, Summer, what is your major pain? Well, mine is something called neuromyelitis optica or NMO. Wow. It is a autoimmune disease of the neurological system, primarily the spinal cord and optic nerves, but can affect brainstem as well. And it's pretty rare. There's in the United States, about 4,000 to 15,000 of us estimated with this. I've never heard of this one before. I, you know, I, I love learning about new diseases. So what can you tell me about this disease for someone who has absolutely no idea what it is? 
Well, several years ago, um, it actually used to be considered part of multiple sclerosis, oh. but it was considered kind of a very aggressive. And some people like to use the word worse, but I really don't like that because I feel like it diminishes the experiences of people with multiple sclerosis. And I feel like it automatically makes it sound like people with NMO are going to have a terrible time. And neither of those are actually true. Mm-hmm. So I just like to think of it as a totally separate disease, which is what it is. It has a different pathophysiology. Most people with NMO have uh, either positive for something called aquaporin-4 autoantibodies or MOG autoantibodies. Those are usually about 94 to 98% of us. I am one of the unlucky ones that is actually double seronegative. I don't have either of them. But essentially... You know how in MS people get lesions in their brain and they're in a particular pattern, particular places. Our brains are actually pretty more or less spared. Um, We get spinal cord lesions that are considered longitudinally extensive, meaning they go at least three vertebrae in length, sometimes longer. Yeah, it's pretty extensive as far as that goes. Um, and then lots of optic nerve involvement. And as I said earlier, some brainstem involvement sometimes. Um, I think part of the reason why people think it's worse is be- or more aggressive is because a lot of disability from both MS and M- NMO come from spinal cord involvement. And I mean physical disability, not necessarily, you know, brain fog, um, all of those things still occur in both diseases but as far as you know likelihood to end up in a wheelchair need mobility aids things like that is usually based off of what part of your spinal cord is involved wow this is fascinating this is my first time talking to a physician with a major pain so (laughs) if you need me to back up and re-explain anything please let me know because sometimes i speak in terms that are physician terms rather than patient terms. Well, it's great because you you know all the terms, you know? (laughs) You've got all this in-depth knowledge. It's very obvious. That's really, really exciting. Um, So how does this, what does this feel like? Well, um, you know, for me in particular, everyone is a little bit different. Just like in multiple sclerosis, everybody can be a little bit different. That's true for NMO as well. For me personally, my left side is in constant neuropathic pain, mm. meaning I feel burning and pins and needles from essentially chest level down constantly and sometimes involving my upper arm too. It's not as bad as the rest. Um, and then my right side is extraordinarily weak. My right leg, I pretty much have to pick it up to move it. Mm. My upper extremity, obviously, I can still move, but, you know, I've lost a lot of coordination in my hands. And I mentioned earlier, I'm a physician. I've lost the ability to do basic procedures I used to be able to do, like intubate people, uh, do central lines, things like that, because I can't can't hold my hands appropriately. Um, There's a lot more. Those are kind of the two major ones that most people see, but I've also lost a good portion of my peripheral vision. Hmm. It's way worse on the right than it is on the left for me. Um, Makes driving unsafe. Um, I have developed uh, this, obviously on this type of uh, interaction, it's not gonna be TMI, but I've developed what's called a neurogenic bladder, 
meaning that I cannot urinate on my own. Mm -hmm. So I have to self-cath multiple times a day. Um, and, you know, obviously that risks of urinary tract infections. Uh, there's, you know, I'm now pretty much a full-time wheelchair user and I don't have strength in my upper arms mm. to do a manual chair. So I have to use a power chair. Yeah. Um, I do that all the time. I can walk about 20 feet, but it's really unsafe. I look like I'm drunk and I fall very easily because I have no <laughs> balance, no coordination. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Me it's too. funny to see. I, I'm laughing because I relate that I'm, I'm the same way. Like I walk around and I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> and I fall Whoa, all the time. Dude, I, I promise you, I, I really didn't just down a case of beer, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like, I actually haven't had anything yet today. Um, and or in a while, but you know, it's, um, it's a lot of, sometimes it gets pretty, kind of sad to have to rely on other people to do things that I used mm. to be able to do myself. Uh, there's a lot involved in it. And, you know, we can talk about each of those more, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. How, how did you discover that you had this disease and when did it first manifest? Okay. So six weeks before I finished residency. Um, so I did internal medicine residency. I did undergrads four years you know, uh, followed by four years of med school and then internal medicine residency, which is three years. And I did all those later in life compared to a lot of people. So six weeks before I finished residency, um, I actually had what's called a golden weekend. And for people that are in medicine, what that essentially means is a time during your residency, any given rotation that as a resident, you have the entire weekend off. Like <laughs> that's phenomenal. Like you actually have Saturday and Sunday off that rarely, rarely ever happens. Right. So Friday I get home from work and I noticed that my left hip had felt like I was, you know, like if you sit in a window and it's really sunny and that sun is shining in and you kind of get warm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's how my left hip started feeling. And I was like, oh, okay, the, you know, I know I haven't been sitting in the sun, but whatever, not a big deal. Kind of ignored it. By Saturday morning, my entire left side felt like my entire lower extremity, all my leg from hip down, felt like it was on fire, except the bottom of my foot felt like it was in a shoe that was wet. Mm -hmm. Like as, as if I was standing in a puddle of water almost always. And then my right side by that Saturday morning was starting, like it was heavy feeling, not necessarily, I wouldn't have necessarily called it weak, but heavy feeling. Sunday came around and my right leg was a little bit worse. And I was like, I'm still just going to blow this off because, you know, we're busy. I've got kids. I'm, you know, busy, just completely ignoring it. And then Monday morning, um, I woke up in the morning, went to get out of bed, and my right leg literally just kind of flopped on the floor. Like when I went to go get up, it just, boop, I couldn't really move it. But I still wasn't the smartest thing I've ever done. Decided I'm going to drive the hour to work and go ahead and go to work. <laughs> so I get to work, um, set through four hours of didactics, which in, is just the lecture period when you're in residency. There's four hours every week that is straight lectures. So set there through that. And then by the end of the didactics period, I was on a hospitalist rotation, which is a lot of being up on your feet and everything. And I went to my program director, who also happened to be my attending for that rotation. And she had been for years, like she knew me very, very well. So I said, 
hey, can I talk to you in the other room? And she's like, sure. And so I go to get up and literally dragging my right leg, like trying to use my arms to drag it. And we get in there and she's like, so what's wrong with you? And of course, being a resident, um, your attendings like to do something they call pimping you, <laughs> which was they just ask you a ton of questions like, what do you think it is? All right. Mm. This is your differential diagnosis. These are the signs and symptoms. This is a differential diagnosis you're building. All right. So what testing do you think needs to be done? What, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I finally get to the end of her doing that. And I just said, I think I know what it is. And at this time we were thinking multiple sclerosis, right? Mm. I said, I think I know what it is, but I don't want to say it out loud because I don't want to say that that's something I'm going to have to deal with because that's permanent. You know, yeah. and I was very, very, very just did not want to have anything to do with that. So she went and sent me for MRIs of my brain, my uh, neck and my thoracic uh, spine, along with a lumbar puncture mm-hmm. and all like all of the blood work, a ton of different stuff. And initially, um, because of the way my MRIs initially looked, Initially, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. And that's not uncommon for people with with NMO. Um, it, it's really not, especially those of us that are seronegative. So, um, so they, she got me in touch with the neurologist who, going off the presumption I had MS, started me on a medication to try and help prevent relapses. Nothing to really correct what's going on. That's all just... It either gets better with physical therapy or it doesn't get better. And at this point, I actually recovered pretty well. They did get do five days of uh, steroids, IV steroids, and that's done at 1,000 milligrams a day for five days in a row. And have you ever been on steroids before? I've been on prednisone a couple times, yeah. Okay. Um, sorry, I'd, sorry to ask you a personal question. Oh, but, feel free. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so... Yeah, you remember what it's like being on prednisone, like right, like, like kind of like, how, a, how, like how, a superhero. <laughs> um, kinda. I mean, for a little bit, um, and I don't know what dose you were on, um, but I was on a thousand milligrams of IV steroids. I was on it's a called, very small dose for like four well, days, uh, and I was like, "Wow, so I feel if great." I, if, I can, if I convert one thousand milligrams of solumedrol to prednisone, it's one thousand two hundred and fifty milligrams of prednisone. Wow. In a day. I think so I was on huge... 10 or something, like <laughs> maybe 30. I don't know. It was like in the in the 10s. So you, you feel like you are, um, well, you feel like a superhero. You also kind of feel like you got hit by a truck at the same time because hmm. you have all this energy, but you're exhausted. <laughs> Your stomach gets torn up because prednisone has a really bad side effect of cause of like causing stomach erosions. Mm. So you have to be on like PPI. So like things like omeprazole, Prilosec, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Nausea, just to out nausea, nausea, nausea. So, you know, tons of stuff to kind of help the side effects of the prednisone. And you do that for a few days. And so I lived like that for a while. I wow. lived like that for a while and actually things kind of got a little bit better. Like, I could walk still. Yeah, I went on and started my attending job. Um, you know, that part of it was pretty pretty good. We didn't find out I had uh, neuromyelitis optica until 2019, which was two years after my initial diagnosis. Wow. So, so this is all relatively recent, just the last, like, four years. Yeah, yeah. Wow. 
That's yeah. so, that must be so frustrating to be at that point in your life. You know, you're about to start working as a doctor and then all of a sudden this thing just pops up out of nowhere. Oh, extremely frustrating. And then I look at it and I'm like, everything went from, from that moment, you know, that first attack to my last one, which was actually the one in 2019 when they changed my diagnosis around. I've been very stable since then, luckily. Mm. Um, at least as far as major attacks go, I've had little issues, but major things go. Um, between that, I had another serious attack that landed me in the hospital requiring plex treatment, all sorts of other stuff. But um, to have everything go that rapidly mm. is also very frustrating to basically be able to go from being a completely healthy, never had anything else medically wrong with you other than had complications when I had my C-sections, but nothing like this, nothing, you know, nothing that I needed medication for regularly, not outside of just, oh, I, you know, like anybody else, you get sick once in a while type stuff, you know, yeah, and be completely healthy. And then to go to have a chronic illness and then have that chronic illness progress so rapidly that within, because from 2017 to 2019, and that shorter period of time is when I ended up in my power chair. Wow, yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I I relate to a lot of what you've experienced, except mine has been a lot slower. Um, you know, I left work about five years ago because I could no longer um, like walk or function comfortably, and we still don't right. know why. But you know, I'm just started using a wheelchair. Um, and I can still, you know, I still walk around the apartment and um, the wheelchair has just been like such a, a godsend because like, wow, now I can get around comfortably. But I feel like if it had, I think about this a lot, like if it had happened faster um, or if I had had a traumatic injury or something like that, I would have, it would have been so much harder for me to accept the wheelchair with open arms. Um, what did that feel like to you? Because this happens so much more rapidly for you. What, what did that well, feel like when you first started using a chair? Well, I'll be honest. So after my last attack and it happened, it actually started on my birthday, July 4th in 2019. Um, your birthday's July 4th. Started, <laughs> yeah. Everyone's partying for your birthday. When I was a kid, I thought it was all for me, you know, narcissistic <laughs> little kids. <laughs> yeah. But no, um, yeah, I, I, that actually initially started with some vision loss first. And then, mm. A week into that, I, I had another episode of transverse myelitis, which is transverse myelitis is the is a essentially it's like a spinal cord injury. It can happen from lot for lots of different reasons. In this case, it's because of an autoimmune disease, but it's that where I have part of my body losing certain things and the other side losing a different thing, but all from a certain level down, right? So kind of like what I was describing earlier about having yeah. this side kind of have those burning and this. Side. So they, I ended up having another episode of transverse myelitis in 2019. That was my third episode of transverse myelitis. Um, initially, when I was discharged from the hospital, I wasn't in a wheelchair. but And I was supposed to be going back to work. And at the time, I was working as a hospitalist. Now I work outpatient primary care. But when I was working as a hospitalist, that's seven days on, seven days off. 12 hour days mm -hmm. and it became rapidly evident that I couldn't walk safely any distance and needed a wheelchair. So initially I went back to work in a manual chair after one and a half shifts realized I, 
I don't have the strength to operate a manual chair. So um, waited to get my power chair, did a lot of physical therapy. Um, and it was hard. It was hard to say, yeah, I do need this wheelchair. But I will say something happened great. <laughs> um, a couple of things. First of all, my husband and I got married. Actually, we this is our second marriage each. We got married in November of 2019. So between September and November, when I... September's when I got my power chair and November's our wedding. Um, during that time, this is pre-pandemic, he and I were able to go to a few concerts, which I love. Mm. I, I We went to a lot of metal concerts. That's the music we listen to. And, <laughs> um, you know, I was able to crowd surf during Crown the Empire and Attila and several other bands and took him to go see Upon a Burning Body where I had to be carried up a flight of stairs. And this is when I... Um, and we would take my manual chair for events like that because power chair is too heavy to lift up. You know, it's mm. 400 pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very expensive as well. But that is when I realized that a wheelchair is free. Yeah. It allowed me to do the things I've always enjoyed doing and allowed me once I w- got back to work to work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's when I embraced the wheelchair, when I realized, wow, I can actually do things. I'll tell you, it was really fun. We went to... um Newport, um, it's a concert hall in Columbus to go see a concert. And a group of guys came up and tapped me on the shoulder. And they go, you want to go up? <laughs> and I said, yeah, because I, I hadn't been up yet in my chair ever. Like, I was like, I was really scared to do it. And they're like, okay, hold on a second. And they grabbed a bunch of people. We took the foot plates off of my chair because you don't want to ram someone in the head with them, right? Took the foot plates off. And it was so freeing. It was so nice to just kind of float on the crowd's arms in so my wheelchair. <laughs> they're, they're lifting you in the wheelchair for crowd surfing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Leave you in the wheelchair, lift you up, and they hold on. You set your brakes, set yeah. your brake light locks on so that the wheels don't just spin. Sure. <laughs> set the brakes on. And it takes more people because they don't want to dump you because they're worried about, oh, dumping the disabled person out on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> But you do that and it's it's just so much fun. And it's also funny because of course, you know, the band people enjoy seeing it, the people performing, and they'll point you out to other cra- people in the crowd, you know, and it, it's just so much fun. And then the last thing that happened that really made me realize just how great having the wheelchair was is I you know, I told you we got married in November of 2019 and we'd actually been planning our wedding for a year and a half, so prior to me being in a wheelchair. And the um, the tailor that did all of my refitting for my dress took very good time to make sure everything was perfect despite being in the wheelchair or I guess because of being in a wheelchair, had to do some adjustments. But at our ceremony itself, first of all, we got married at Newport Aquarium in right outside of Cincinnati. So we got married in front of a shark tank, sharks <laughs> swimming behind cool. us. Um, it was great. And then during the actual reception though, you know, um, Again, we chose to use my manual chair during this just because there's so many people and it's easier to get around than the power chair. Yeah. So during the actual, you know, during our first dance, my husband was a, picked me up and I was still able to dance with him hmm. standing, even though he's obviously holding all of my weight. <laughs> yeah. And then, which is great. And then um, something I'd mentioned to my friends several uh, a little while before we got married is, you know, I don't know that I'll ever be able to be in a mosh pit again safely because, you know, being in a wheelchair. 
And evidently my friends told my husband who he worked with the DJ and got all of our other friends that were there and they did a circle pit and had me in the middle of it. And it's like, yeah, it's still, you can still have fun. You can still have a real life. You still have people that love and care about you and support you. And you can still do everything you've ever wanted to do. You just might have to do it a little different. Exactly. That's so true. That's so well said. That's been my experience as well. Um, yeah, in fact, like not using a wheelchair is what was preventing me from doing all the things I wanted to do because right. I couldn't last, you know, like even last night, Andy and I went to um, some of her family's house for dinner. I didn't bring my wheelchair because I'm like, well, I'm just going to walk a short distance. Um, and it was just so hard, you know, <laughs> just like. It's so exhausting. It's so exhausting. Whereas if I have the wheelchair with me, I'm not focused on how my body feels. I'm focused on the experience. But if I don't Absolutely. have it with me, it's a constant feeling of, well, how much energy do I have left? How far can I make it? Can I, if I walk this extra 10 feet, is that going to make it so that I can't walk out of the house when I need to leave later? It's just like these constant thoughts that all go away when I use the wheelchair. And I, oh, I just wish I'd started using it sooner. It's just made such a wonderful, absolutely. positive difference in my life. Oh, I'm so glad it's made such a great difference in your life. You know, I know, you know I mentioned that, you know, I have to... Uh, use a catheter. I, you know, I have the neurogenic bladder. So when I go places, if, and obviously I can't walk that far safely anymore, but earlier when I could still walk a little bit better, um, I would go places and I'd have to be concerned about how close is the closest restroom. Right. Am I going to be able to make it to the restroom in order to do what I need to do and then still make it out and back over here and am I going to be exhausted? Am I not going to be able to enjoy the rest of whatever we're here for? You know, and oh, by the way, if I can't, if it's hard for me to even get there, you know, me not doing what I need to do as far as my bladder goes, shoots up my risk of getting a urinary tract infection, like mm -hmm. really high. Mm -hmm. And when I get a urinary tract infection, it makes all of my symptoms worse because mm -hmm. any infection, any illness, anything like that is it's not that it's causing a relapse of my disease, but it's causing me to not have as much reserve. And so Absolutely. when I have less reserve, all these symptoms get worse. Yeah, I, I, might, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but there's this analogy that I really like about the nervous system being a bucket where, you know, it's like your nervous system is just full of water. And then uh, if anything else happens, like an extra infection or something else, you're adding into that bucket and it can start to overflow. So it doesn't matter. Exactly. It doesn't matter what it is. If your body is processing something that it normally doesn't or that it has a hard time with, it can make your nervous system bucket overflow. And that's when all these weird relapse symptoms can pop up. So yeah, Absolutely. I mean, people like us, we got to live in balance all the time. We have to eat right. We have to get whatever exercise we can. You have to keep your mental health in as positive of a place as possible because there's such a connection between mind and body. So if you, if you feel bad, it can make it harder for your nervous system to cope, which is so unfair because, you know, we're dealing with stuff that's so hard. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, but that's actually leads into a good question. How do you, how do you deal with the mental aspect of this? How do you keep yourself in a positive place? Well, you know, I tend to be a fairly positive person in general. Hmm. Um, I don't really like the thought, you know, oh, it could be worse because there's a couple of reasons I don't like that. I don't like that because it downplays what someone is going through by while at the same time making people who 
are going through other things appear worse than you are. Hmm. Does that make sense? Like you have pity for them. And then at the same time, right. And at the same time, I also feel like um, what is worse for one person may not be worse for another. So I don't like that saying. I don't, I don't like comparing anyone's health journey to anyone else's. No, I, I only like no. to compare my own journey to myself, you know, like exactly. We can yeah. relate to what each other's going through, but we don't right. compare it. Exactly. So I, yeah. I tend to be at my own baseline fairly positive. But you know, I do have down I do have times that I'm not so positive. I do have times where I am sad or just not coping as well. And that's when I um you know really rely on my husband and our children and our friends. And, you know, my other family that we don't live close to, because my closest family is 15 hours away from us, um, to at least talk to and be able to vent to and cry on their shoulder. And they're very reassuring. And then honestly, um, you know, being a physician that worked through the pandemic all the way up until August of last year as an inpatient physician, uh, doing hospitalist where you're actually caring for COVID patients that are hospitalized mm. to now working as an outpatient where you're seeing a lot of the um, long hauls and then also dealing with people who don't want the vaccine. And I, and mm. again, I get why people are scared. I think that it's completely reasonable to have questions and fears and get those answered. But the point is I'm getting at is the other thing that I've done. And then a bunch of other things in my life, I've actually decided to go ahead and start seeing a therapist as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that actually has helped me tremendously, you know? It's such a good idea. Yeah, I see a therapist as well. And actually, Andy and I um, sort of transitioned into seeing the person that started as my therapist as our couples therapist. Because one of the hardest things for me is, you know, all of these feelings of guilt around weighing down my partner with my illness. It's like, I don't have a choice about being sick, but she has a choice about being with someone who's sick. And I have a lot of guilt around that. And we've, it's been so helpful. It's been so helpful to have like a impartial third party who understands chronic pain, um, who has a lot of experience talking to people like me to, to kind of mediate those discussions around these things and around our future has been so helpful. It's like this weight is so much easier to bear because I have, you know, I, we've been able to process through some of my fears and neuroses in a way that has been so helpful. Like I can't recommend therapy enough. If you know, there's no reason to suffer alone. There's, you know, there's so many avenues of care that are available to people like us. And I think therapy is a very vital part of that package. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think, uh, honestly, um, even if it hadn't been the pandemic over this last bit, just those changes in my own health alone, and then having to rely on my husband so much more. I mean, there are times that my walking is even worse where he literally carries me hmm. when it's trying to get me into a chair, move me into the bed, do, you know, and um, there's been times he's had to help me with my self-cathing, which is really embarrassing, right? Mm. Um, There's been times where he's had to do, he drives for me now. I don't drive myself anymore. Um, He works full-time himself, but he works from home, which is lucky, but he drives me. He drives our kids places. He does pretty much all the household cleaning anymore. Mm. He does all of the yard maintenance because I can't get out there and do it. Mm -hmm. I don't go to the grocery store because it's just exhausting for me. And during the pandemic, because I'm extremely immune suppressed because the medication I'm on now wipes out 
like half of like, actually wipes out all my B cells. So I actually am ha- functioning on essentially half of an immune system. What are B cells? So, I don't, I've never heard that term. B cells. So B cells are, there's when in your immune system. So your white blood cells mm-hmm. are essentially, I mean, there's obviously there's way more than to it than this, but essentially there's B cells and T cells. Okay. And B cells do certain things. T cells do certain things, but they work together to really accomplish anything and along with a bunch of other cells and everything else. They're both white blood cells, B cells and T cells. Yes. Okay. They're all they're types of white blood cells. So yeah. your B cells are the ones that make antibodies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Your T cells are things like your T helper cells, T killer cells. It sounds kind of, you know, uh, it sounds real badass and it kind of is. <laughs> but, um, essentially they all have different jobs to do and the B cells make your antibodies. So the medication I'm on kills every single B cell that I have in my circulation. So all of these cells are made in your bone marrow. Yeah. And so it takes about, and typically, um, so for people with NMO, there is rituxan that they can use. Um, there is a medication called Solaris and another one, I can't remember the name of Solaris and the other one are all for seropositive patients only. Rituxan can be used for both seropositive and seronegative. And then there's Ocrevus, which is basically the same, very, very similar to Rituxan. It's a a humanized version of it, essentially. So they have me on on Ocrevus, which is typically an MS medication, but is very much like Rituxan. So they can use it in certain NMO patients. And they do that because I have a high rate of infusion reactions hmm. and you're less likely to have infusion reactions with it. But Ocrevus essentially kills out all my B cells. It takes on average, usually about six months for those to start getting released from your bone marrow back out into the blood cir- circulation. Right? So typically the medications given once every six months, in my case, I actually started to do what they call repopulating. So releasing the B cells out too soon. So they have moved mine to once every 20 weeks instead of once every 24 weeks. And that's because because your B cells are attacking your immune system when they shouldn't be. So you just got to kill them to slow this progression of that happening. Well, kind of the B cells are what produce the antibodies that attack my nervous system. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So indirectly. Yeah. Right. So they kill them to prevent the antibodies from being produced that attack my spine, optic nerves and, and brainstem. Yeah. So. It, it's so great to have a, phy- a physician to talk to about their own disease. I'll say it again. <laughs> I'm, try- I'm trying to explain. I'm trying to explain it in. It, it can get very, very, very complicated. So when I yeah. talk about B cells and T cells in the immune system, just understand what I'm talking about is literally the bear bear like yeah. there's so that's much great with it. that's all i can handle it's all making sense to me i appreciate it <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's how that way in, in general autoimmune diseases result from either b cells or t cells not doing something right yeah yeah so, it, so in general what what happened on the the initial mri where you were diagnosed with ms you said that this often happens where mm-hmm. you're misdiagnosed can you tell me some details about that yeah, so typically, remember I said earlier that uh, NMO spinal cord lesions are greater than three vertebrae in length, right? Okay. MS tend to be about one vertebrae in length. 
when they have spinal cord lesions or one or less typically. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in my case, mine was two and a half vertebrae in length. Mm. So just under the technical criteria for NMO, but longer than typical for MS. Mm. So that initially they were thinking that I was having an atypical presentation of MS. Okay. So they of course started me on a medication called Jelenia. Then I had another, I had another really, my second episode of transverse myelitis. Um, that one ended me in the hospital, like I said earlier, getting Plex. Um, and then I ended up on crutches, the bilateral forearm crutches. Mm-hmm. Um, I would use those for most of my ambulation. And at that time, when I had that second relapse, they changed me to something called Tysopri, which is a medication for MS given about once every 28 days. Um, unfortunately, Tysopri is one of the ones known in NMO patients to not only not per- actually work, but actually accelerates the disease. Oh, wow. And they put you on that so, while you were misdiagnosed with MS. Correct. That's no good. <laughs> no, but it's not entirely their fault either. Remember mm. earlier, like that, when we were talking about the MRI right. at that time, and then being seronegative, because the vast majority of NMO patients have at least one of those autoantibodies, aquaporin 4 or MOG. Yeah, tell me more so about I mean, that. Not- These, th- those, I, I, I was sort of following that part, but I'd love a little more detail about about those okay. things, yeah. So aquaporin 4 uh, is an autoantibody that directly attacks a very specific part of the myelin. It attacks a, a particular channel okay. that's and in the myelin. And when it myelin is something channel, I, I do know. Myelin is like the, the coating around your nerves, right? Right. Yeah. So this is actually attacking very specific points in the myelin itself, and then it causes the myelin to break apart and mm-hmm. demyelinate. Yeah. So you end up with the same result as MS. You get that demyelination, right? Yeah. So you end up with the same result, but from a different cause. And again, this is more primarily spinal cord and optic nerve sparing our brains. Whereas while MS patients can have spinal cord involvement and a lot do, and they can have optic nerve involvement and a lot do, most of them are more brain predominant. Yeah. So yeah, it has to do with, right. So the channels, the aquaporin and, and MOG attack are less concentrated in the brain and are very concentrated in optic nerves, spinal cord and brainstem. Interesting. That's why we get the predisposition to where we, to where it does. Yeah. So when you say that, um, when NMO, when you talk about it kind of progressing faster than MS, um, it also progresses in a different part of the body. So like comparing that doesn't make sense because exactly like something in the brain you know, like, like ha- having lesions in your brain is, you know, very traditional with MS and it's something that can be progressive and it's um, something that can be, you know, very hard to learn to live with and to work around. It can have all sorts of um, effects on the body. Um, and, but it might tend to, you know, as far as like your mobility might tend to affect it a little bit slower than, M- than NMO is what it sounds like. But it doesn't, correct. I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Well, yeah, but I mean, just, you know, my own, I still don't know what I have, but I do know that mm-hmm. I have some weird brain issues. <laughs> like I, ha- my, my doctors say that I have, uh, um, like autonomic dysregulation, you know, basically. So yeah. there's something in my autonomic nervous system, something in, that seems to be in my brain that seems to be affecting me. And I also have these like body symptoms and they're just so, uh, even though the mind and body are connected, they feel like so different, you know, and they, they affect me in such different ways. 
Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think part of the reason why people sometimes say, oh, NMO is worse than MS. When again, I say worse in quotes, because like I said earlier, I actually don't necessarily think it is. Um, They're very, very different diseases in a lot of ways. But the reason why a lot of people have traditionally tried to view NMO as worse than MS is because and you pointed out something very good when you were talking about having brain lesions and being able to work around it, your nerves in your brain actually have a lot of redundancy. Hmm. So when you get a lesion in the brain, it may attack part of your mobility here, but that same mobility has redundancy with other nerves running around. So it's less and it may slow you down and you may have flare up of symptoms or it can, you know, continue to progress as you pointed out. And it does, and it can actually be very debilitating, especially yeah. once you run out of those redundant nerves, right? The spinal cord itself, though, essentially has no real good redundancy in it from mm, the beginning. Gotcha. So there's very little to, once the damage yeah. is done, it's done, and there's really no good way to go around it. I hear you. Yeah, that makes perfect yeah. sense. Sometimes your brain can rewire itself. Like a lot of physical therapy will actually help reroute it. And there's even truth to that with NMO. Hmm. That's why I don't really like to say NMO is worse outside of it makes it seem like MS can't be bad. It also makes people who are newly diagnosed as NMO thinking they're going to automatically have this horrific outcome that is really, really terrible when that's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. With physical therapy, you can to some degree regain some things uh, just kind of depends. I mean, it's the nervous system. Yeah. We don't know a lot about it, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's right. the tough part. Yeah. And so, each person with MS is so different and I'm, sh- and it sounds like the same is true with NMO. So it's very I, true. yeah. So it sounds like NMO can be more severe than MS for your body, but then less severe in the brain. So like comparing them, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So it's, I, right. I, I, I get what you're saying. It, it makes a lot of sense to me for sure. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So how did your family react when you were first diagnosed and how, how has that process been? Because I mean, you have such a big family, you know, and I'm, I'm just, I like my family, you know, lives in a different state and I'm here my immediate life. I just, you know, have Andy around. I call Andy my power assist with my wheelchair. (laughs) Um, You know, she drives everywhere. Like I, I don't drive anymore either. Um, and like she helps me out around the house and stuff like that, like you were talking about with the gardening and everything. So I just know that like these relationships are difficult when um, one person has a chronic illness and the other doesn't. So how has that affected your family? Well, I am fairly lucky. My husband is very used to uh, chronic illnesses and disability. He grew up in a family that has a lot of people that have various types of chronic illnesses. Um And one of his cousins was actually completely reliant, um, and she had some intellectual disabilities from birth. Well, not really from birth, from about four months old. She got meningitis um, and ended up in a wheelchair at that point and all this. So he's actually very used to it. So Mm -hmm. when he sees me going through what I'm going through, he's like, well, of course, that's I'm going to help that. He's like, I love you. That's what we all do for people we love. Right. And our kids again are just like, okay, this is the way mom functions. So, you know, they don't, they actually don't think much about it. Now our kids are all older. 
I don't have, we don't have little kids. Our youngest one is now 12. Um, oldest one is 24 and lives on his own, getting married next March. Then there's two 17-year-olds, a 15-year-old, and a 13-year-old. And they're all just kind of like teenagers that are absorbed in their own world, I guess. <laughs> this isn't really necessarily see it as anything to be embarrassed about or feel like they're doing anything. Oh, you're asking me to do that again? No, they're just pretty, they've all taken in stride. My mom and dad, who they don't live here, my mom got very, very, very worried. Um, mm. When I was first diagnosed with MS, she was worried. Um, she, you know, she has Crohn's, she has lupus, she has MS, she's got she, oh, she's wow. got epilepsy, and she's had two strokes. Wow. You know, my dad, yeah, so she's got her own. I have a great aunt that had MS. Um, you know, so the idea of MS wasn't that scary for her because she understands it so well herself, mm. right? Um, but she was worried because no one wants to see their kid go through an illness. You know, yeah. they don't want to especially when they know that it's never going to go away mm -hmm. and you're not going to get better. So of course my mom was upset and my dad was too. And they live 15 hours away from me. So they felt like there's nothing they could do to come help. And, to, you know, and then when they switched my diagnosis over to NMO, that actually freaked my mom out a lot because she did the worst thing you could possibly do. And she went and Googled it. She Googled it. <laughs> she Googled it. <laughs> yeah. Because um, the, you know, now with all of these medications they use for NMO, people's life expect expectancy is actually pretty good. I mean, oh, wow. there are people that are living, you know, now, even before they had Solaris and the other one, just with Rituxan alone, people are, you know, oh, they're able to live with the disease 20, 30 years successfully. Um, but prior to that, which wasn't really that long ago, because the NMO antibodies were discovered I think it was 2002, if I wow. remember right, right in there. Um, prior to that, you know, it used to be like, oh, you've got five to 10 years to live and mm -hmm. you're going to die of respiratory failure because it, if, you know, it affects brainstem lesions, affect your dry, respiratory drive, your heart rate, all of those things. Yeah. So, you know, just the things that keep you alive. Right. So, of course, my mom read that and of course she freaked out and, you know, she's like, Oh no. And, and I was like, it's okay, mom. It's that's inaccurate old data. Let's, you know. Yeah. Let's, I mean, mom. it's tough. Cause when you, when you do Google stuff and we've all done it, you know, oh, who hasn't the, the thing that will stick in your head is the worst thing you see, you know? <laughs> right. And it may not even be the accurate thing. It, it may never happen to you. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Or it might be completely yeah. wrong to begin with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I when I look up medical stuff, I try to stay on um, the Mayo Clinic website, uh, and that's a good website. Yeah, I I trust that website. You know, I've had enough doctors tell me like, if we can't figure you out, we're sending you to the Mayo Clinic. And I actually applied and was rejected from getting an appointment there. I may apply again if we're we're currently uh, doing genetic testing, and if we okay. if we don't find. I'm in much better hands now than I was before. I'm, I'm at the University of Washington and I got a test kit today to spit into and send out to do some genetic testing. Oh, please um, start getting some answers. I know, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. But but if we don't, if we finish this whole line of, of diagnostic questing and don't find anything, we're going to apply again to the Mayo Clinic. But um, I just, I just, that's the only resource online that I feel comfortable mm -hmm. saying, you know, 
if you want to look up your illness, check out the Mayo Clinic website because it's a very measured, reasonable description of things. But even so, it's still not necessarily a good idea to look at it because the one worst thing that could happen is the thing that's going to stick in your mind. And, you know, Andy and I talk about this all the time because she is a, um, a planner. She likes to think ahead. And I've completely stopped doing that because it's so difficult for me um, because there's so much uncertainty. So I try to live in the moment and try to just make today as good as possible. And it has made me so much happier. And I feel like my life is, is on a really good track right now, even inside of all of my, um, you know, disabling health issues. Um, I'm feeling productive and happy because I'm really trying to live in the moment. But when you think about the future with a chronic illness and you look at the, uh, you go Google things and you say, okay, well, I've got five to 10 years, that, that thought just becomes this like blaring alarm siren in your brain. And it makes it impossible to, to be in the moment of today and to enjoy today. You know, I mean, even if you did only have five to 10 years thinking about that every day, you're basically living your own death every day. Whereas you could be living your own life every day right? for as long as you can. And people that do that, I feel like, um, I feel like their long-term prognosis has a, this is, I'm making this up, but I feel like their long-term prognosis might have a better shot of having more time because they're, you know, focused on the time they have. I could be completely wrong about that. Um, but I don't know. What do you think? You're, you're a physician. What do you think? You know, I don't I don't know that there's actually been any studies on that, but yeah. I think that's actually a really interesting concept because I do find even with my own patients that have uh, chronic illnesses, they do better if they focus on living now. Yeah. You know, um, now they do better in terms of not just being able to be happier but things of like, oh, making sure they're taking their medications appropriately exactly. and taking your medications appropriately yep. matters. Yes. You know? And exercising, so, you know, like uh, right. exercising is so hard. And I've had to completely switch what I think exercising is because it used to be go for a jog, go for a bike ride, go do yoga. I can't do any of those things anymore. So now it's like go for a roll in the wheelchair, you know, or, or like lift five pound weights or stretch your body, like put a yoga mat on the floor and just stretch out or do some restorative yoga, something like really slow and easy. Um, Doing nothing with your body is absolutely not the answer. And I did that for like five years. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But the other side to this is that like, because I don't have a diagnosis, I had some doctors tell me it might be dangerous to exercise because like, you know, because they don't know. Because they don't know what's going on. You could be like liberating something in your body and your bloodstream by um, getting your heart pumping. And every time I get my heart pumping, I get like dizzy and and nauseous and start to feel sick. But then I finally realized if I'm in a wheelchair, that is so much better, and I can do so much more. And learning my limits and learning how to not go above those limits as far as how fast my heart rate is going and you know how much I'm doing. I'm now in a place where I can do stuff physically again uh, in the wheelchair. And it's my brain is clearer, my energy is better, my sleep is better. It's just improving everything just by increments. But you don't have to, I'm never, probably never going to be like all the way back to where I was before. And making that the goal is not, is not reasonable, but making the goal like be as good as you can today and try to see a little bit of progress from day to day. Like that's a very reasonable goal that most people I think could probably achieve. 
And I think that's true whether there's someone like us with a, like you with an undiagnosed issue, me with a very, very rare chronic issue, or even someone that is healthy in general. Yeah. You don't have to think of things necessarily as in, yeah, it's always like, if you're completely healthy, it's always good to have plan- like goals, right? Or even if we're not, we need goals, but maybe our goals need to be a little bit shorter. Maybe, and it's one of our goals should be being also just kind to ourselves. Yeah. So we have a bad day and we can't do something. That's okay. Yes. It's okay to say today was a tiring day and I wasn't able to lift my five pound weights with my hands. I wasn't able to go for the roll in the wheelchair, but tomorrow will be a new day and tomorrow we'll try again. Absolutely. Learning how to forgive yourself and be kind to yourself and relax. Because I used to beat myself up when I couldn't do things. And I just sit there on the couch or lie there on the couch, mad at myself because I was on the couch. And Mm -hmm. the less I focus on that, the more I focus on, okay, well, I can't do that today. What can I do instead? What would be fun? What would be comfortable? What sounds really good to me right now? You know, give yourself an excuse to play your favorite video game or like listen to music or watch TV or read a book. The things that make you feel better. I, you know, we're talking about MS and like rewiring your brain. I do feel like you, you have some control over your nervous system that you can assert as far as keeping yourself calm and comfortable. And that has to help long term. You know, if you're like in this state of panic or pain and, um, and being mad at yourself, I do feel like that will hurt long term. Well, I agree because I think that when you are in that position, that frame of mind of not being kind to yourself, not forgiving yourself instead you are in the pattern if you're not doing that then you're in the pattern of thinking oh my gosh why can't i do this i should be able to do this i'm mad at myself for this i'm mad. and then you actually don't take the steps to do those things anyway <laughs> right yeah. or if you do you end up hurting yourself right because you go too far exactly yeah exactly it's yeah. This, either you don't do it at all or you decide at the i'm gonna jump out of the chair and try to run across the room right. and you fall exactly you know And so it's all about doing what you can do and being kind to yourself and all of this, putting yourself in a good mental place also leads you to being able to do things like, you know, making healthier food choices Mm -hmm. because you don't need to do comfort foods, whatever your comfort food may be. Most people's comfort food is not healthy. Right. Mm -hmm. So it allows you by being kind and good to yourself, you're able to do things like eat healthier Eating healthier means that, oh, you're supporting your immune system, you're supporting your nervous system, you're supporting your cardiovascular system, you're doing the basic things to take care of yourself, while at the same time, and just eating healthier, and you kind of, oh, maybe you've gained a few pounds because you haven't been able to work out as much. Well, you know what, if I eat healthier, even though I can't work out as much, I might lose some or at least come to a good balance. So diet is important. Um, Frame of mind, diet, taking your medications, being honest with your doctors about I'm having this side effect. This one's not working. You know, good open lines of communication with your entire care team and your loved ones that are close to you. All of that is how, regardless of what your issue is, whether it's diagnosed or not, is how you get through it. It's how you stay happy and be able yeah. to live. And this life and this illness doesn't become overwhelming. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's okay. 
you're going to go through, if someone is like dealing with something for the first time or dealing with something newly right now, you're going to be overwhelmed at first. You're going to have days that are totally overwhelming. And Absolutely. there are days where it just feels like your life is over. Like, I felt like that so many times. Like I thought I was dying at one point. I'm just like, my body feels like it's dying. I think I need to like wrap up my affairs, <laughs> you know? And, but the thing is, is like, I got through it. You know, I got through that period and I'm in a better period now. So, right. it, yeah, just like learning how to roll with those things and ride through them and, and yeah, just make the, make the best choices you can each day and eventually things will improve. Right. And, you know, it's not just you're going to have overwhelming days. You're going to have days where you're angry about it. Like, yeah. I know there were days, especially after my 2019 attack, because in NMO, they tend to call it attacks, and in MS, they call it relapse. They're essentially mm. the same thing. Interesting. Know? Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's just different verbiage. Like but a flare up, basically. Right. Essentially. Right. Um, but when I had this in 2019, you know, by the time I got to the hospital, so on, like I told you earlier, it started on my birthday, July 4th. Well, I was working as a hospitalist at that time. And the place that I worked at was a very, very, very small hospital. And there are only four of us there, two that work nights and two that work days. So we work opposite weeks of each other. Right. So that my, the day, the guy that I work days with, he was on vacation out of state, which, Hey, who, why wouldn't you, you got seven days off, go, go for mm -hmm. it. Right. Uh, the same with the person who works nights opposite of the person who was there. So she and I were the only two there. She's working nights. I'm working days. And I couldn't see hmm. like over the course of the week, I went from being able, I lost peripheral vision towards just over the course of the week, things went completely gray and blacked out. By the end of the week, my husband was like, I've got to take you to the hospital. And during the week, I was like, no, don't take me, don't take me, don't take me to the hospital. Because if I go to the hospital, that means my partner who's working nights then has to work 24 seven for seven days in a row. And that's oh, wow. not feasible. Right. Yeah. So uh, delayed going to the hospital, got to the hospital. And by then I started having also transverse myelitis where it completely, I couldn't walk. My husband had to, I, my husband was trying to carry me through the parking lot of the, uh, the parking garage of the hospital, take me into the ER. And it got to the point that I literally just collapsed on the ground and they had to bring out chair, you know, like a real chair and bring me in. And at that point, I'll tell you, I one, I wanted to give up because I'd been fighting so hard since just two years earlier. And this was my third major attack. And I was so scared because I couldn't see. And luckily I've regained some of that vision with the Plex again that I had and a bunch of other, you know, steroids and all this sort of stuff. Um, but I, I was so overwhelmed, sad, and angry. I was so mad that I had gotten this disease six weeks before finishing residency, just starting and attending and just becoming in your career, like, yeah. you know, where you're, and every, it felt like everything was being, this is the third major attack in essentially two years at that point. Um, it felt like everything was being ripped away from me mm -hmm. and everything I'd fought so hard for, by going to medical school, or I'm sorry, by, first by going to undergrad as a single parent and then to med school as a single parent and then through most of my residency as a single parent, you know, um, I'd fought so hard for this life and this goal, this everything I wanted to be. And I felt like it was being taken away and I was angry. I was so mad about it. Um, but I used that anger to focus on physical therapy. 
Mm. and focus on everything that I could. And while I never regained the ability to walk, I did regain and shift my perspective. And I felt like, okay, this is awful. But now with my wheelchair, you know, we were talking about earlier, it's freeing. You can do things. It's like, so my life isn't over. I yeah. still have a life. You Absolutely. Know? I, I still have a life. I feel the same way. I mean, I, you know, you mentioned going to concerts. Like I used to play concerts. I, I was a um, musician. I was in this glam punk band called Mugatu and had the most fun I've ever had in my life. And my illness flared up um, and like I had to cancel shows. And, you know, at this point I haven't performed in like five years. And uh, that's what I wanted my life to be was to be a performer. And right. I st whenever I think about it, even right now, just thinking about it, I get really angry. You know, that anger is yeah. always going to be there. But I focused that, I channeled that, I redirected it because I want to be creative. I want to do something that has value and makes people feel, you know, good. And I, right. so I created this podcast because this is something that I can do, you know? Right. Like, we spoke before the podcast started. Like, I have some pretty nasty brain fog sometimes. And like there's a lot of recordings for this podcast where I, you know, completely forget what I'm going to ask next. And I just stop the recording and I rack my brain for a second so I can come up with it. Um, like there's some, and I always edit that stuff out just to keep the flow of the conversation going, but, but I can still do it, you know? And I'm, I'm, I've like, this is an environment where the people I'm talking to understand brain fog and they get it Absolutely. and they're completely forgiving if I need to stop and think for a second. And, you know, this and like the reaction that I'm getting from people listening to the show is, is so wonderful and so like nourishing for me as a creator um, and just as a human being. And then not to mention that these conversations are always amazing. You know, I, every conversation I have for this podcast, I leave feeling like lighter because, you know, I, I, it, I just like talking to people who get it just makes me feel so much less crazy. And I felt crazy for years. I felt crazy for years. I felt like, you know, so many doctors telling me that my symptoms were all in my head and that I was making it up and that I just needed like psychotherapy to stop me from having symptoms. And I, I hear stories like that from people all the time, not just on the podcast, the but also on TikTok. And, you know, people are, people are dying because of that. Like people are going undiagnosed right. their whole lives and in pain their whole lives because they're not being listened to by doctors. So just Absolutely. being able to talk to other people who experienced similar things just makes me feel so much better. And I'm still, I still have so much happiness in my, in my life, even though I can't do the thing that I thought I was going to do. I'm doing something else that I never would have imagined that I really love. So you just never know where life's going to take you. And if you stay on the road and you, and you keep, you know, course correcting and just steering towards the happier thing, you'll find joy. And it's, it's just a process. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely is like, you know, I'm still working, like I said, as a full-time physician. Um, in August of last year, partway through, like I said, partway through the pandemic, I was inpatient the first part of it. In August of last year, when um, it really got to the point that I could no longer do procedures, I was, I know how to do them. Like, mm. unless I'm having a moment of brain fog, but it's like, <laughs> I know how to do them, Yeah. but I just can't coordinate my fingers. I mean, you're taking a giant needle and putting it in someone's jugular vein, Yeah. you know, you got to be pretty like, precise or you might harm them, right? Sure, absolutely. Um, 
you intubate someone down their esophagus instead of their trachea, yeah, you can pull it out and put it in the right place. But if you don't do it soon enough, you cause other problems. You can cause aspiration. You can cause all, all sorts of stuff. And I just made the decision that I couldn't do procedures anymore safely for my patients. Yeah. And when I made that decision, we decided to let, I decided, you know, me and everybody I worked with decided it's time for me to move to outpatient medicine, which when I was a resident, I never wanted to do outpatient medicine. I loved being a hospital. So that's what I trained for. That's what I did for the first part of my career as an attending. Um, but now that I've transitioned outpatient, I actually really love what I do. Mm. I get, um, I see the same patients over and over and over instead of just while they're there for their hospitalization. You build a relationship with them. I enjoy it a lot more than I thought I would. You know, yeah, I don't pr do procedures, which I do miss, and I still kind of grieve the part of being a hospitalist that's gone. But I'm so grateful that I'm still able to be a physician and talk to patients and build a relationship with them and have them. And they'll come in to my, my office and you know, they'll ask me things about my family and I ask them about their family. And it's a very different relationship than in yeah. hospitalist. Um, so it is, you're right. You find other things while well, I flipped from, I'm still in medicine and I flipped from being inpatient to outpatient. It's a huge difference. Um, but you still find what you love. You know, you, you were a musician for, which by the way, I was a musician for a really long time before I ever went into this, oh, cool. never performed live, like in bands around the place, uh, other than like a lot of school performances and, well, a few things like setting up. I mean, we did set up our saxophones out, our cases and plates, our saxophones on the Pier 49 in San Francisco when I was young because <laughs> we thought it'd be fun. And it was, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, you learn, like I know, for example, I wouldn't be able to, I, I started out playing violin. I wouldn't be able to play violin anymore. Yeah, I don't have the dexterity in my hand. I don't have the strength any longer to hold hold it up. Um same with, you know, I played clarinet, um, the dexterity to do the fingering flute, yeah. same thing, but also just holding it up, you know, yeah. and then all sorts of, all the saxophones and all the, you know. Music is so physical that you need to pour your whole body into it to really be great. And Every part of you. Yeah. Every yeah. part of you. And yeah, it's tough. Like, I, I miss it so much and I still do a little bit of recording, Um and, you know, I, I have like an electronic drum set in my apartment and my synthesizers and guitars mm -hmm. and bass, and I have it all here. And I, I tinker with it sometimes, but it can be really painful, you know? Oh, yeah. Like in a way sometimes that just it, going to look at it is painful because <laughs> yeah. you're like giving up something, you know? It's Yeah, like, you know, playing drum, drums used to be like a great way to blow off steam. And now it, it can be like, you know, it can really aggravate my chronic pain in a way that is really unpleasant. So uh -huh. I just kind of have put it all on hold, you know, just like hoping, hoping to find a diagnosis. I, I'm not in a position to say that I'm never going to play on stage again because I don't know. But right. to, to, there was a time when I was really focused on that and it was not good for me. You know, it, it no. really made me unhappy. So I've, I've channeled my creativity into other places. And like, well, I, I, have a, I have a TikTok where I green screen myself into Star Trek because I'm a huge <laughs> nerd. And that's been Star like kind of... Sorry, what's that? I said Star Trek is so great. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'm green screening myself into every episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, it's on TikTok at Jesse Mercury if you want to check it out. But, I'm going to have to see yeah. that. That's hilarious. It's like, it's doing great. And it's, 
I, I'm like building community around my favorite show ever, which is so exciting. Um, and that, that started because the type of video content I was producing was too hard and too long to keep doing. So I switched to like micro content and I switched mm -hmm. to something where it's like, well, if I just go through every, every episode of Star Trek, I don't have to like think quite as hard. I can just kind of, you know, react to what's happening in the show instead of like generating mm -hmm. scripts from scratch from my old web series, Mercury Rising, like all this stuff that I love that I've stopped doing. And I used to like do game streaming and I just, I can't, I can't do that. Like I can't sit and play video games for three or four hours and chat with a live right. chat anymore. It's just like my brain doesn't quite keep up with it. So all these things that I've been building towards, I had to put them all down. But the new things I'm doing are easier to make and have become more rewarding because they seem to be reaching more people. Um, right. And, you know, I with this podcast to me, it's all about like quality of interaction, not quantity. And, you know, hear, hearing from people that they are feeling less alone really means so much to me because that's what I feel too with this podcast, you know, like I felt so alone for so long and I, right. you know, not to make it about me, but just to say that like, like you're saying, you know, you've switched gears, you've switched careers, you're doing what you train for just in a different way. You never expected to do this, but you love it. And you right. you're finding satisfaction and joy and happiness. And that's what matters. Like the reason we all pursue our dreams is to be happy, right? Like you're right. not pursuing your dream because you hate it. You're doing it because you love it. And if you right. achieve your dream, you should be happy about it. But if you have right. to switch your, if you have to switch up your life and find something new, as long as you're happy, that's what matters. You know, that we live in this culture. It's like, if you don't achieve your dreams, you failed, which is not true. You know, if you are unhappy, then, then there's something that can be adjusted. Happiness is the goal. Right. That's what I was just going to say. Happiness is the goal. It doesn't look, you may start out thinking you're going to be somebody on stage performing all the time or somebody like me that was going to be a hospitalist or a variety of other dreams. And when something happens, it throws a curveball and you have to change that change direction, even if it's just slightly, even if it's finding a different way to do content like you've been doing or, you know, me where I switched from inpatient to outpatient or again, a variety of other ways, you find something that is fulfilling to you and you embrace it. And happiness is the goal, like you said. Like, yeah. I think that's true for everybody, whether you have a chronic illness or not. I think that people that have a chronic illness or disability sometimes understand that better. Yeah, than absolutely. They're completely able-bodied and healthy. Yes. You know, it's, it's i know i understand it a lot better now yep as too. a chronically ill disabled adult than i did prior to this i'm happier I, now it's weird oh I, I, to be honest i am too don't get me wrong there are certain days that i'm like i wish i could just get up and walk or, or um you know i'm sitting there thinking like oh i've got a pressure ulcer from sitting in my chair in this one position for too long because i forgot to do my shifting the way i'm supposed to mm. i wish that i could and yeah, there are times that happens, but ultimately, I'm still getting my goals. I'm yeah. still, you know, yeah, I may have had to change them. I may have had to make some adjustments along the way. But guess what? Don't we all have to make adjustments along the way? You and I are just doing it in a way that other people don't necessarily yeah. have to. And I will tell you, it bothers me when you know, I'll still go, like, we actually, my husband and I, uh, two of our really good friends own a bar in the town that we live in. And um, cool. it's a really fun bar. It's called Bootleggers. It's done as kind of a speakeasy looking place. Oh, wow. But it's completely 
accessible, right? I, I can get in and in my power chair, I can get around in there. It's great. Awesome. Um, it, it's so great. But you know, I've had people there be like, man, I don't think I could ever live like you live because that's got to be awful. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's really not. I mean, I'm glad you don't have to live like this because no one wants to have to spend, no one wants to have to get a $40,000 power chair that your insurance pays for, luckily. Mm. Oh, and by the way, now you have to buy a handicap accessible vehicle that's another $96,000 and right. you know all this other stuff. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, though, it's not that bad. I mean, I'm sitting here at the bar just like you are. We're yeah. not doing anything different, so I don't understand what you're thinking is so difficult about this. Yeah, I, this is something I think about a lot because I'm just going through this transition from able-bodied to not. And just, mm-hmm. I've had an uh, invisible illness my whole life, and now it's very visible yeah. when I'm out in a wheelchair. And the way yeah. that the world reacts to me is completely different. Um, completely. I'll, I'll share a quick story with you. This just happened sure. to me a couple of days ago. Um, I So... I've been building up my muscles so that I can go uphill because, you know, I live on Capitol Hill in Seattle and I'm on a hill. So I, I, you know, in order to get anywhere, I have to be able to um, get uphill. And like I said, Andy's my power assist, but I try to do things on my own. I'm really enjoying the process of like getting some exercise because I haven't been able to in so long. So, you know, I'm out on the hill, like going up these steep hills in my wheelchair and it's hard work and I'm like working at it and I love it. But people, people walk by you and uh, they and they like oh poor guy can i help you i'm like no leave me alone i'm having a great time like this is not your deal and a couple days ago a stranger came up behind me and grabbed my chair and started pushing me up a hill without saying a word to me yeah <laughs> that's unacceptable completely unacceptable and i turned around i was like what is going on and like my fingers could have gotten stuck and i actually heard i mentioned this on tiktok and someone commented that um, they had a friend whose fingers were broken by someone doing this to them, grabbing and pushing their chair exactly. without asking. So I turned mm-hmm. around to this guy and I'm like, what are you doing? Stop. Like, stop. What are you doing? He's like, no, 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 no. And he kept pushing me. And I'm like, no, please stop. Seriously, I need you to stop. And he's like, no, no, no. And right. kept pushing me. I flipped the brakes on and he keeps pushing me. And I'm just, my, my wheels are just like sliding along the ground. And I finally turned around and I screamed no. Like I screamed no Would at him be- at the top of my lungs and he finally stopped. And I was livid. You know, I was living and I posted about this on TikTok and people, so many people were saying, this has happened to me too. And I put spikes on my wheelchair handles to stop strangers from grabbing my chair. Um, Yeah. The the analogy I used is like, it's like walking up behind a stranger on the street and wrapping your arms around them and grabbing them and picking them up and carrying them. Like, it's basically like kidnapping. It's like assault, you know, don't touch me. Well, and you know, before I had my, before I had my power chair, uh, I had that happen to me a couple times. Um, and one time we were actually at a different bar that's real close to the one my friends own. Again, really accessible. And anymore, I only go on their patio because I hate going inside because of stuff like this. I go inside and this guy starts like trying to, like on the dance floor area, decides he's going to dance with me by grabbing my chair and spinning me in circles. Ugh. And I tell him, stop. And he's like, Okay, I'm sorry. And then immediately did it again, probably uh, because he was intimidated. But yeah. anyway, immediately did it again. I turned around 
And I literally screamed in his face. I said, stop, get your hands off of my all sorts of language. <laughs> and he looks at me again. He's like, oh, and he puts his hand on my chair. And I literally smacked his hand. Yeah. And I said, get your hands off of my chair. I said, that's literally like, and the, then I, what I did is I bent down and kind of grabbed one of his legs. So that'd be like me grabbing your leg and dragging you somewhere. Exactly. Stop yeah. You're, you're completely taking my choice away in that moment. It, it's, right. it is like, a, it feels like assault. It does. And you know, what was lucky is the, the bartenders that work at this particular place are actually good friends of mine as well. And one of them comes up and kicks the guy out of the bar and then comes back over because she didn't see what happened at all. She comes back over to me and she goes, okay, Summer, what, what just happened? Why did I just kick that guy out of the bar? I knew I did it because you were screaming at him and <laughs> you had to have a good reason. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Know. That's awesome. Uh, I will, do you want me to give you a tip in your manual chair? If you ever have Please. anyone try and sit in your lap. Have oh, you ever God. had anyone try? Okay. I, I've had that happen to me lots of times, both power chair and manual chair. I haven't quite figured out how to deal with it in the power chair yet. Because if I advance or pull back, you can actually hurt someone. But in the manual chair, when someone went to sit in my lap, she hadn't quite sat down. I flipped my brakes off and just slid back a couple inches and let her fall to the ground. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, these are things Take that I never, I never thought about these things before in my life, and now I'm living yeah. it, and it's absolutely shocking the the way that people treat people in wheelchairs sometimes. Oh yeah, have you ever had someone try and pet you yet? No. Okay, that's happened to me a few times. Ugh. Come up to me and like literally try and pet me, like my head, like I'm a dog. What? And then start talking to me and baby talk while they're doing it, and I'm like, oh my god. And I was looking at him, I'm like, um, my hair is fine. I don't need you petting it. And you can talk to me like an adult because I am an adult. Yeah. You know, yeah, these well, are strangers too. Yeah, like strangers. Complete strangers. Yeah. I mean, just if you think I'm struggling, it doesn't mean that I'm struggling. You know, like right. if you see someone in a wheelchair, treat them the way, literally just treat them the way that you would treat any other stranger on the street. You know, if like and it's someone okay is. To offer help. It's yeah. okay to offer help. But when they say, no, I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you would offer help to someone on the street, if they weren't in a wheelchair, that's a good situation to offer someone in a wheelchair help. Like, if if they are, like, crying or, like, bleeding or invisible distress, you know, it's okay. Like, be compassionate. But if someone is just, like, going about their day in a wheelchair, like, that's just our day-to-day life, you know? Like, you're a stranger. We've been doing it fine without you this long. We probably don't need your help, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Look, I, I, I can't. And it is funny. Um, in my power chair, um, I had someone come up and like try and take over my hand controller. You know, it's a, oh it's God! A, so mad. The thing is, my power chair, my power chair, my power chair. If you do it real full force, um, it can go six miles an hour. So it's Whoa. not slow. Yeah, it, it's got a little bit of pickup. And this person came over and tried to do that, and I said. If you touch my power chair again, I will run you over with it. And by the way, it has a spike out the bottom because the <laughs> spike in the bottom is blocking mechanism to lock it into my uh, into stationary position in the van. I was like, and it's a four inch spike and it will harm you. And the chair is 400 pounds without me in it. So leave it alone. Wow. It's, you do get, I do get a little bit like just kind of, you'll pick up on some really quick, easy things to say to people, you yeah. know, and and things to do to get them to just leave you alone. And yeah. what I will say, it is funny when um, my 
husband is with me whenever we go anywhere. Mm-hmm. This stuff doesn't happen as often. Exactly. It never yeah, happens right. when it Andy's with me. Person. It's right. just when I'm alone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's something about the, seeing a disabled person without an able-bodied person. Suddenly they like, oh my gosh, how are they functioning in this world? Well, pretty obviously we're doing it. So, you know. Yeah, that's the whole point of a wheelchair is so that people with disabilities can function normally, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. That's the whole it's point. Like, yeah, like, we made- I, I'm right. out and about because of my wheelchair. So leave me alone. Right. Like, look, I may just be enjoying a roll through the park. I don't really need exactly. some stranger to come up and talk to me and try and help me. And I, and here's the thing is I do understand. I don't want to discourage people from helping from a true compassionate, genuine stance. Yeah. If you see someone need help, please offer the help. Listen to them though. Like the disabled person, if you offer them help, like you said earlier, it should be someone else, in the same way you'd offer someone else help and listen to them if they say no or, you know, yes, that's okay to offer help. It's yeah. not okay to just come up and do something. Absolutely. In my opinion, yeah. don't, I wouldn't even start by offering someone help. I would start by saying, hi, how are you doing? You know? Exactly. Because if they exactly. need help, they will ask for help. And if they don't need help, right. they'll just say, good, how are you? And then you can just go right. about your day like normal people. Right. Without uh, right. accidentally assaulting someone, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> like that. Without accidentally assaulting someone. Yeah. <laughs> and what's that, you know, like, right now we're talking about something that I think actually applies to disability, disabled people across the board, whether they are, excuse me, in wheelchairs, using a crutch, crutches, using a walker, have completely invisible illness. All of this applies to disabled people across the board. Um, we simply just deserve respect. Mm. Yeah. 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 We, I just want to be, deserve- I want to be treated the same I was treated before, you know? Right. I, right. I don't want people to walk up to me and say, oh my God, what happened to you? I want them to walk up to me and say, hi, I haven't seen you in a while. How are you? Like, that's such right. a better right. way to start a conversation because like, <laughs> if, I, if I want to talk about what's going on, I will. And if I haven't seen you in a while and you ask me that question, how are you? I will probably say, I would probably explain why I'm in a wheelchair because we haven't seen each other in a while, you know, if we're friends. Right. So, well, and it all, and it all depends on how much energy you have. Like, exactly. you, you know, you were talking about dealing with energy and brain fog. Yep. Sometimes you just don't really have the energy to have that discussion right. with someone. And there are times, you know, that um, people will be like, the first words out of their mouths are, if you don't mind me, why are you in a, if you don't mind me asking, why are you in a wheelchair? why is that the first words out of your mouth? And sometimes I answer them and sometimes I tell them, well, um, why are you walking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. That, yeah. yeah. It's just, I, it's I'm just curious about um, your primary care practice. Do you, yeah. do you have pushback from people when they, they see that their doctor's in a wheelchair? Um, I haven't heard any. Uh, yeah. I haven't heard any from any patients. Um, I'm quite sure that there are some that maybe feel a little bit odd about it at first, but then they realize that I actually do listen to them. I don't, I actually am very good about listening to my patients and not blowing them off and working with them. I try and make this very much a, we are going to work on this together, yeah. whatever their health issue is. And then a lot of them honestly say, you know, I know you're a patient as well. Hmm. And so now all of a sudden I trust you a lot more. Interesting. Because I know you know what it's like to totally. be sick or to be injured or, you know. 
that's how I would feel. I, you know, just because like, that's how I already feel about just people in general. When I see someone (laughs) in a wheelchair or talk to someone with an illness or a disability or something, there's a kinship because we've gone through similar struggles, you know? Right. And a, a problem with a lot of doctors is they don't listen. They just like, do not listen. So right. having a doctor that listens is really all you could ask for. Well, and I also think there's a lot of doctors that have been very, very fortunate to not have disabling illnesses. Mm. They may have had like, you know, all sorts of illnesses. There may even be some that have, you know, some hypertension or that they have to take medication for all you know, things like that. But they haven't experienced disabling chronic illnesses, whether it's an invisible chronic illness of where you just have that brain fog. And you're like my, for example, my mother, you know, when she had uh, just her Crohn's is the one that's actually causing her most of her problems. Most people can't, you know, you can't see it. Yeah. You don't know what's going on, but there it wipes her out. Right. But most physicians have never experienced that. So most physicians, they don't know what it's like. And so they don't always, since they don't understand what it's like, they can't sit there and just listen to someone in a way that is effective. Hmm. Even if you're only spending it, you, I mean, I can take a 15 or 30 minute appointment with a patient and listen to them in such a way that they feel like they've been there for an hour or two. No, they're getting out what they need to get out. They're saying what they need to say, how they're feeling. And they're getting advice from me that says either one, okay, well, here's what, something we can do. Or, you know, I really don't know. Let's run some tests. Let's figure this out. You know, if we'll either figure it out together or if I have to, I'll send you to a specialist, you know? Yeah. Do you have any advice for people seeking care that are having trouble getting doctors to listen to them? Because you're in this unique position where you are, you are a doctor and a patient. So you understand you know, how sometimes doctors' eyes glaze over if you, you know, if you just go through your entire list of what's going on, the doctor's like, okay, well, you're obviously making this up. How do you get around that? Like, how do you approach a doctor in a a good way? Well, a couple of ways. Uh, First of all, uh, I always tell them, I need to tell you about this. And if you phrase it in, I need then you're refocusing on you rather than on them, right? Hmm. So I need you to listen to me say this. I need you to understand what this feels like. I need you to understand how disruptive this is to my everyday life. Things yeah. like that. Awesome. Other great, thing, great tip. Yeah, great tip. Yeah. The other thing is, is if you've got a long list of stuff, because there, we only doctors really only have, depending on practice, fifteen or thirty minutes, maybe ten or twenty minutes to mm-hmm. sit there with you. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a really long list of stuff, try and pick out the top two to four mm-hmm. that are really bugging you that day, and let them know up front. I have this really long list. These are the ones that are most important to me. And you can, and you can even say, can you look at this and tell me which ones you think are the most medically imperative to be discussed today and Mm. then be prepared to schedule an appointment to go down the rest of the list later brilliant whether it be another whether it be a month later two weeks later whatever it may be kind of essentially break your list into smaller pieces the best you can yeah sometimes i know that's really hard because it all goes together and all is affecting you and this wouldn't be bothering you if this wasn't and this and so you have to really go through that list in a time where you're not having brain fog on your own before you go see the doctor and try and look at it and be very objective 
which one of these things is the most pressing right now? Absolutely. Yeah. Address that first. That's great. Yeah. Write out this list. And also like if you, if you have something that is sometimes visible and other times not take a video, I always say that, but absolutely help me so much to have a video of my muscle spasms. Absolutely. And the thing is, is not only does it help any doctor that's not willing to watch your videos or look at your pictures, they shouldn't be taking care of you. You need to go to a different physician. 100%. Because any physician should be willing to say, oh, you're describing a spasm to me and you happen to have it on video. Please let me see it. Right. Because different spasms, different ways that things happen can actually have very different causes. Right. And being able to see it allows you to be able to pick out, oh, this is more likely to be this, or this is more likely to be this. Yeah, totally. Great advice. I love it. Thank you so much for that. No problem. This has been so great. I'm loving talking to you. I have one more question for you. Um, If you were to be able to address someone who was just diagnosed with NMO, what would you say to them? I would tell them, breathe. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to be angry, but breathe and listen to what your body is telling you Mm. and try and find someone else that has NMO, even if it's something online like this, even if it's something where you just text them. It might be hard uh, because there's so few of us. Um, Gunthy Jackson Foundation is a really good foundation that can connect people together. And then the SNRA uh, Association is also really good. Those are usually the two places I tell people to go to when they're experiencing this to get reliable information, information on where to see physicians, various treatment plans, and to get connected to other people that have this disease because that support is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Do you have anything that you want to plug, like your TikTok or anything like that? Feel free. I, I really no, appreciate your time, and I'd love for you to plug anything you got. Well, thank you. Um, no, my TikTok, um, I don't really hardly have anything on there. You've probably seen some of it. Um, I'm really terrible at doing it. I, it I'm not very, I don't know. I got to figure that out. Uh, <laughs> but I don't really have anything to plug other than, You know, everybody going through any chronic illness, anybody going through NMO, MS, any, any other chronic illness, um, it's okay. We're all in this together. You may feel alone at times, but you're really not. And it's okay to find people, uh, even if it's through this podcast, you know, and figure it out. So, and talk to us. That's awesome. I appreciate your time so much. This was so much fun. You're awesome. I love chatting with you. You remind me of a lot of my friends. I feel like if if you if you were living in Seattle, we would have been hanging out. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. If you were living in Columbus, we would have been hanging out. So. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for your time. You did amazing. I can't wait to share this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Summer. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. 
Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons, including Naomi Adele Smith, and our $25 per month producers, including Steve Cavanaugh. Learn how you can support the show at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.